Hey everybody, tonight airs the final episode of Game of Thrones, a series beloved by millions of fans. My wife Rachel and I are headed over to my co-host Andre's place for a viewing party, and if you're a fan and you happen to listen to this on the day of release, then maybe you are getting ready for the climactic final episode too, and this short podcast app can help you get warmed up. Otherwise, if you're listening after the airing, like most of our listeners probably will be, then it'll help you look back and remember what was truly great about this series. And if you're not a fan, well, check it out. I honestly didn't like it at first, but Andre convinced me to go back to it, and I'm glad that I did. Now, heads up, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't watched up till the end of Game of Thrones yet, stop listening now. But if you have, listen on. We're talking the legacy of Game of Thrones. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Recently, there's been a lot of fan outrage over the way the final series has played out. From the idiotic battle tactics at the Battle of Winterfell to the mad rage of Daenerys at King's Landing. And while I do personally feel that most of those face palms are entirely justified, I'm not here to talk about that or to rip the show apart in any way. Instead, I want to talk about something nobody is talking about right now. The legacy of Game of Thrones. That is, I want to talk about what people will remember not a year from now, not five years from now, but 25 years from now, or even more. And in my opinion, that legacy is perhaps not what you might think. Fans say they love the show because its characters act realistically and in a morally ambiguous manner. I say, hmm, maybe. If you're comparing to fantasy flicks like Lord of the Rings, then yeah, I guess so. But if comparing to ancient or medieval period dramas, which Game of Thrones basically is, except with magic and dragons tossed in, then eh, not really that realistic. The series Rome, also by HBO, felt far more realistic and morally ambiguous to me, so I don't think that's really the reason that Game of Thrones will be remembered later. It will be remembered because of the way that it treats gender. That's right. It's about its portrayal of gender in fantasy. Game of Thrones is the first big production TV fantasy series that goes out of its way to show all kinds of different gender identities. Straight, hetero, male, and female are the norm in Game of Thrones, but the series also portrays the struggles of those outside the norm, and I can't think of any other major fantasy TV series that does that, at least not that does it very well. That is what Game of Thrones will be remembered for. I'm going to go through three character sets that break the mold of the fantasy genre in a good way. Arya and Sansa, Varys and Grey Worm, and finally Samwell and Jon. You'll see why those two go together when I get to them at the end. All right. First, Arya Stark and Sansa Stark, two sisters. When we first encounter Arya, she's a little girl, barely old enough to be self-aware of her gender identity, and yet we, as the audience, like everyone else around her, can already see that she's not a typical little girl. She dresses like a boy and wants to fight like a boy. She's fascinated with swordplay, and only somewhat reluctantly does her family recognize and nurture her passion, even though it transgresses gender norms. And eventually, she will grow up to become not just an accomplished swordswoman, but a deadly assassin as well. 
Now, women being able to fight is not new in fantasy. We see that all the time nowadays, but most of the time, TV and movies give women ridiculous kung fu moves or archery skills without really attending to what that means for their internal journey. Arya Stark is different. In the early seasons, she stands beside her older sister Sansa, who is the pretty maiden of pretty maidens, and it is just painfully obvious that her boyishness is awkward by comparison. There's an internal struggle there that we, the viewers, can relate to. Moreover, the show attends to her different physical prowess. She doesn't whip out a giant broadsword and be able to wield it just because the writers want her to. Rather, as a person of slight build, even for a girl, she is given a rapier rather than a longsword, which is lighter and much more appropriate for her build. And she is shown hanging on to that blade, which she affectionately calls needle, throughout the series. She doesn't become a badass fighter just because the writers want to do the PC thing and provide a strong female character. Rather, she becomes a badass fighter and we get to feel the awkwardness, the struggle, the blood, sweat, and tears of that journey along the way. Now, as for Arya's sexuality, it would not have been surprising at all if the show revealed her as a lesbian. They didn't do that, though. She is shown to be a straight hetero girl, which only accentuates, in my mind at least, her awkwardness as a tomboy. There's no well-duh rationale. Of course, she's boyish because she ends up being a lesbian. No, she's not. She's boyish and she's straight. And that is interesting. That's ambiguous. And that's realism when it comes to gender. Gender is messy. That's realism. Now, as a final note on Arya Stark, in the final seasons, we see her have sex. And when she does, it's not this romantic love of my life boy meets girl thing. Well, for the guy she's with, Gendry, it is kind of the love of my life deal. But for Arya, it's quick, it's relatively passionless, it's an exploitation of the moment that befits a person who has chosen the military lifestyle. That matches what I have often heard of many women in the military today. You develop a certain carpe diem about this sort of thing, a sort of detachment, and you grab your pleasure when you can because who knows if you'll be alive tomorrow. Perhaps your experience of women in the military today is otherwise, I don't know, but to me at least, it seems like a realistic portrayal of what could happen with the development of a character like Arya, who is so attached to her martial role in the series. To me, that's a compelling way to do her sexuality and her gender. Switching to her older sister Sansa now, the one I just called the pretty maiden of pretty maidens, Sansa is the straight one. She's the normie. She's straight up hetero inside and out, and she swallows her culture's norms hook, line, and sinker. In fact, in the early seasons, she's so boring that way that she seems like she's only there as a foil to Arya's character. But how they develop Sansa's character in later seasons is, in fact, brilliant. Without straying one inch from heterogender norms, they portray how toxic those very norms can be. Sansa is all too happy to wed her beloved prince Joffrey, who turns out to be maniacally sadistic. And then she is later wed, whether she likes it or not, to other males who simply use her for their own pleasure, like Ramsay Bolton, for example. The best guy out of the bunch she ends up marrying is a dwarf. I love Tyrion's character, by the way. Fantastic. But that's not what we're talking about here. By the end of the series, 
she is sown deeply disillusioned, stripped of her girlish romantic fantasies and staring cold, hard reality in the face with courage. She is the 100% straight normie character, and yet somehow the show manages to make that interesting. That's good. Arya and Sansa Stark, two hetero-female characters that portray different aspects of confusing gender identities brilliantly. Okay, let's move on to our second set of characters, Varys and Grey Worm. Varys is an advisor to kings, and he is a eunuch. Now, at first, the show does not devote much character development to him. For many seasons, he's just a guy with secrets and no balls. <laughs> but at least it can be said that from the start, the show was fairly accurate to the stereotypical traits of eunuchs as they appeared in history, for example, in the Byzantine Empire, namely balding, pudgy, somewhat effeminate in mannerisms, and power-hungry. And even though those were stereotypes, even in their historical day, in the Byzantine period, they were stereotypes, not iron-fast historical realities. Despite that, given the fact that almost no other show portrays eunuchs at all, it's laudable that we get to see this in Game of Thrones. However, above and beyond that, in later series of Game of Thrones, the show starts treating Varys like a full person. And for me, his character didn't really come alive until he revealed that his loyalty is to the realm, not necessarily to the person who sits on the throne. That made him real because it gave him an internal struggle. Do I follow orders or do I follow what I think is best for the realm? That's interesting. And the fact that we get to see a unique struggle like that, a real struggle treating a eunuch like a real person, is unique and compelling. Now, Varys is not the only eunuch on the show. The army of the Unsullied are all eunuchs, made such by slavers as a brutal means of forging them into steely-hardened soldiers. And we get to know one Unsullied in particular, their commander, Grey Worm. What's great about Grey Worm is that he becomes romantically involved with a girl named Missande. In other words, his detesticled condition does not prevent him from forming romantic attachments, and indeed wishing that he was a whole man. And that is accurate to how eunuchs really were in history as well. First of all, they have all the same emotions that we whole men do. Second, they may have the same sexual desires even, particularly if they were made eunuchs after puberty, after their sexual organs had developed, which seems like a realistic possibility for the Unsullied, although we are never told in the show. I don't know if it's in the books. I'm afraid I've only watched the TV show. So all I can say is for what's on the show. But the point is, real eunuchs had real desires and emotions, and we get to see that in Grey Worm. Finally, we see Grey Worm and Missandei having sex, which seems like the one thing that eunuchs could never do. But those who listen to our series on this show uh, about the court eunuchs of Byzantium will know that of course eunuchs could have sex, they just had to use other parts of their body. We see Grey Worm going down on Missande in one of the most appropriate scenes of Cunnilingus you'll probably ever find on television. Historical peoples, depending on the culture and time period, were aware of female anatomy, and if eunuchs are to be compared with the Byzantines, oh yeah, they totally knew about the clitoris. We have historical documents by Byzantine church fathers exegeting the particular flavor of sin involved in sullying one's lips upon a female, so we know that they knew how to pleasure a woman in that way. 
I guess Grey Worm would no longer be unsullied, quote-unquote, in the eyes of those church fathers. In any case, Varus and Grey Worm give us an experience of what it's like to be entirely outside the normative gender dichotomy, living lives as eunuchs. Finally, we come to our last set of characters. We have Samuel Tully and Jon Snow. Now, what do these two characters have in common? They're both pledged to the Night's Watch. And what does the Night's Watch say about sex? It's a no-no. Not as a sin in and of itself, but the idea is that you have to devote yourself 100% to the Watch, and you can't let yourself be distracted by such things. And that is fairly accurate to many non-Christian religious and ascetic traditions that go celibate. Buddhist monks, for example, don't necessarily think of sex as inherently evil, but it is just one of many worldly pleasures and pains toward which you must become detached in order to devote yourself wholly to your duty, which in a monk's case is enlightenment, but in Sam and John's case is defending the wall. Now, what the series depicts is Night's Watchmen trying to maintain their celibacy and failing miserably. <laughs> For example, and this too is accurate to history. For example, it was not uncommon at all for Buddhist monks to relieve themselves in an outhouse in other ways than that place is intended. Similarly, there was a whole tradition of medieval European stories and art depicting celibate friars in bed with women. Now, much of that does come out of an anti-clerical trend in the culture at the time, but some of that is no doubt based on the truth, because it is hard to maintain that kind of discipline, and we hear of Night's Watch men constantly being found in the brothel taverns in town in Game of Thrones, and the higher-ups in the Watch tend to be relatively forgiving because they understand how hard that vow is. Now, we get to see this up close and personal in the characters of Samuel Tully and Jon Snow. Sam, a pudgy bookish type that has no business thinking he ever has a chance with a woman, pledges himself to the Night's Watch, only to end up falling in love with a girl named Gilly, who seems to actually like him back. Then we get to see the internal struggle of Sam being a young man raging with hormones, yet being all too aware of his vows. That's interesting, and it depicts an aspect of historical sexuality, or rather asexuality, that was all too real. Jon Snow finds himself in a similar situation, likewise pledged to the Night's Watch, yet enraptured by a wildling girl named Ygritte. We can see his struggle to make the right choice between love and duty, and it's perhaps more inevitable that John will indeed get with the girl, given that he's the closest thing the show has to a lead character, and he's stunningly handsome. And by the end of the series, he's all but forgotten his vows completely as he falls in love with Danny. But nevertheless, for a brief moment at least, we do get to see his internal struggle with his choices around sexuality. Sam and John treat us to a realistic depiction of celibacy, or rather attempted celibacy, that is rare if not entirely non-existent in the fantasy genre. And that is what Game of Thrones will be remembered for. Not for its supposed character realism, not for its moral ambiguity, not for its special effects, but for its depiction of gender in fantasy. In the characters of Arya and Sansa, it brings to life two very different experiences of growing up as a straight female, one perfectly straight and the other a bit wonky, 
in the characters of Varys and Grey Worm. It shows us what it's like to be in between, neither man nor woman exactly, but a third gender, as they thought of eunuchs in Byzantium. And in the characters of Sam and John, they show us what it's like to struggle with the vows of celibacy, but refreshingly without bringing in the baggage of Christian sin into the picture. There's no other fantasy series out there that I can think of that has done this. The legacy of Game of Thrones will be its portrayal of realistic struggles with gender in fantasy. All right, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this, folks. If you're getting ready to watch the final episode, I hope you enjoy that too. I thought this episode would be timely as well as appropriate for our show, given that we are ramping up for our new show called The History of Sex. And like I've been saying, we don't know exactly when it will come out because we're taking the time to do it right. But the best way to get it when it comes out is to subscribe to the Dead Ideas feed, where we will be releasing updates and announcements as we go along. All right, it's time for me to get into my Carl Drogo costume. That's right, we are going to Andre's party in character. I'm going to be Carl Drogo, and Rachel is actually going as Sir Davos the Funyan Knight. You heard me right, the Funyan Knight. <laughs> it's going to be a blast. I hope you enjoy your night, too. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm -hmm.